Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. It's episode 114. And I got to be honest, my inbox is getting the better of me. It's overflowing. Uh, if I sound muffled, it's because I'm buried in emails. So I'm going to take some time to do an email episode. Thank you to everybody for, for sending in all these questions. Thank you for continuing to listen to the show, for being interested in the nerdiness of lumber that you keep sending me these questions. It's it's I really appreciate it. And I apologize that it takes me a while sometimes to get to them all. And my effort to try to compose themes for some of these episodes, sometimes I just can't find a place to stick them and they just keep getting older and older and older and cluttering up the inbox. So yeah, today I'm going to talk, um, talk a little bit about pine. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about insects, but specifically lumber that's old and insects. I want to talk about plywood and its movement. Does it move? I don't know. Um, a little bit about buying logs. And then finally, we're going to just scratch the tip of the iceberg on the ever so popular charring of wood, torched wood, shushugiban, or the proper yakasugi. I think that will take up a fair bit of time here. So, so let's get started on this. And as always, I do want to say thank you to those of you who support the show. Uh, many of these questions come from patrons of the show. So go to patreon.com slash lumber update and you can support the show. Um, patrons of the walnut level and above are getting those fancy species stickers. And uh, I'm getting a lot of great feedback on those. Thanks everybody who's sending me pictures of wherever you stick those stickers. I love it when I get to see a sticker stuck on the actual species of wood. Very cool. Gotten a lot of great pictures of Koa over the last couple of weeks with uh, the sticker stuck to it. And um, while we're on that topic, I am getting so many pictures of elm, various species of elm, a couple with the elm sticker stuck to it um, from last month. But more importantly, um, a lot of people saying, oh, I love elm. I love working with it. I, I use it whenever I can get my hands on it. In almost, actually, I think 100% of the instances I've heard from, people are getting it through kind of urban logging or maybe a tree they felled themselves. Nobody's really buying it commercially, which is certainly what I've seen and what, what you might have expect. I'm also seeing in a lot of turned items and smaller items, boxes, keepsakes, things like that, which kind of back up the, the whole idea that Dutch Elm was making um, it hard to find larger boards. So first and foremost, Thank you to all of you who have been sending me really cool pictures. Uh, Elm dies really well. It turns really well. Um, it just, it has so much character. Um, every single piece I look at, it, 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 the wood is absolutely stunning. So just to kind of underscore what I said in the last episode, if you can get your hands on some Elm, regardless of the particular species of Elm, do it. It's cool stuff. But flying directly in the face of one of the things I was talking about with Elm being hard to get on larger boards, I actually got um, a great comment on Instagram from Mark over at uh, Winwood. Uh, if you guys aren't familiar with the, uh, his Instagram account is uh, Winwood underscore LLC. He's the guy, I've talked about him on Wood Talk, that he will... Um, post pictures of a log and kind of break down the costs associated with going and picking up the log, sawing the log and all that, and kind of breaking down like, frankly, how little money <laughs> is being made in the lumber industry and all of the, the costs that go into making boards. And then when you figure out like the cost per board foot, 
it makes you wonder why anybody would want to be in this in this industry, <laughs> frankly. But um, Mark wrote to me and said, <clears throat> out in his neck of the woods, he's in, up in the Pacific Northwest. They have huge elms. He's got slabs on his uh, property that are 40 inches wide, and he seems some even wider. And he can walk the streets of Portland, Oregon, and see enormous elm trees. So uh, I, I, he wet my whistle enough that I think I'm going to try to get Mark on the show in the coming weeks to talk about this. Because I, I have heard from people about some... Uh, Dutch elm resistant species of elm. I believe Siberian elm is one of those. And it's one of the reasons you do find it planted uh, in a lot of places. It grows fast. It's a nice ornamental tree, but apparently it may be resistant. What I'm really curious to find out is how many other people in the Pacific Northwest are having the same situation where you have these enormous elm trees. Because I can tell you out east, that's not happening. Um, Even in the Midwest, I have not seen large elm trees. Um, I might have mentioned in the the last show when I took a road trip out to uh, uh, Colorado to see my mom, you know, I specifically uh, took a bunch of pictures of trees, you know, for the lumber update Instagram <coughs> tax deduction um, and, uh, you know, saw a lot of different elms, but all of them were really small. I never saw any large elms. And this was, you know, all the way from Maryland, where I live, out to Colorado. Now, obviously, I didn't get over the Rockies and certainly up into the Pacific Northwest. So so maybe it's my understanding that Dutch elm has gone from, from coast to coast. So really be interested to hear from other folks who might be seeing these large elm trees. But I mean, this is this was the experience before Dutch Elm took down all the elm trees is they were everywhere and they were huge trees. And that is the, you know, the, the morphology of the tree. It should grow big. It should yield huge trunks with great lumber wood. And it certainly was used as lumber wood for a while until Dutch Elm kind of took it down. So thank you for that perspective, Mark. As usual, it seems like the trees in the Pacific Northwest are all big. Um, so you got to love it. Maybe that's why so much lumber comes from that, uh, from that neck of the woods these days. Thanks again, Mark. And, uh, uh, I hope to get you on the show to talk about this a little bit. Well, and talk about your business. Come on, let's, 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 uh, give you your, your time in the sun here. Um, I <laughs> wanted to share some additional feedback, kind of make me laugh. It's, it's more of a question, but I'm going to treat it as feedback. <clears throat> it's from uh, Daniel and he says, why is lumber so cheap? <laughs> I love that. Um, he says, I'm relatively new to woodworking and have been binging in your podcast and learned a lot. While it seems everyone is always complaining about the rising cost of, well, everything, but especially lumber, the more I learn about the lumber industry, the more expensive I expect lumber to be. Between growing, felling, transporting, milling, drying, and other assorted activities associated with producing lumber, it seems like a very time and labor intensive process that should make it a fairly expensive product. So why isn't lumber more expensive? Daniel, I want to know the same thing. Um, There are many domestic species of lumber whose price is hovering right around the same level as it was in the 1950s. And you cannot tell me that the overhead has not gone up exponentially since the 1950s. The issue certainly is lumber is a commodity market. Lumber is a raw material and raw materials tend to get the brunt of you know, difficult economies. People drive the prices down. So one uh, manufacturer will drive the price down in order to, to the, go to all their suppliers, all their vendors and say, you got to lower your price because I'm my margins are hurting. So then those vendors go to their vendors and say, you got to lower your price because my margins are hurting. And eventually you get to the bottom of the pile and that's the raw material suppliers. That's lumber. 
And we just, the prices get driven down, driven down, driven down. And then you kind of get this market going rate and it keeps that from rising too much because basically everybody manufacturing something is above you in the supply chain. So you get the brunt of it. Everything, you know, what is it they say rolls downhill? Yeah. Um, lumber is a raw materials. So this is why so many sawmills, so many lumber yards are not really selling a lot of rough sawn lumber anymore. They're selling transformed lumber, milled lumber from the most basic form of, of S2S or possibly skip planed or certainly molded into an S4S product. Sometimes it's cut into specific links. Why do you think dimensional lumber is dimensional lumber? Um, certainly there was some standardization of sizes that happened, but what came first, the two by four or uh, a tree that was kind of sort of shaped like that size? You know, certainly they were building walls out of whatever sizes they could get available. Um, eventually standardization came into being as a way to kind of create a market for this stuff. But there is so much overhead in all this. And really the only way that, that the costs have been kept down is through mass production. Um, through being able to get a fair number of sticks out of a log and efficient milling of a log, um, really once you build an operation that can process a lot of logs into boards, it can start to be profitable. The other side of things is there's always a market for it. So while the margins may not be high, it's always there. Even when the prices skyrocketed up during COVID, people were still buying lumber because you, you can't not, you know, things have to move forward. Lumber is used in just about everything. So while some markets may bust and you go with, with nothing, no sales at all, the lumber market kind of always steadily plods on so that maybe if you're lucky dollar a board foot profit that you're getting may not be a lot, but it's something that you can count on. And if you can get your production levels to a certain volume and you can sell that volume, then you've got this baseline and you can build an empire on a steady baseline. And if that baseline climbs a couple of cents every year, well, that's growth. And you're never going to see a lumber company that's posting 20, 30, 40% growth in a year because that's just not the way that market runs. So it's not really a direct answer. I agree with you. In many ways, lumber should be more expensive, especially when you start to factor in the transformations, the milling and things like that that's more commonly done. Um, but it is still a raw material. And if the cost of lumber goes up, everything downstream of that is going to go up dramatically as well. So there's just kind of economic caps that keep it the way it is. Um, when we saw a massive disruption in that like very steady eddy demand for lumber, it was called COVID, that caused major problems. And 20% of the Canadian sawmills shut down. Um, I think a good 30% globally shut down because the margins were so tight. And when that, like you can count on that revenue disappeared because of COVID, those, the, the margins couldn't keep them floating anymore. And many of these sawmills shut down. So the good news is that it's very steady and you can continue to, to grow your business. The bad news is, is because the margins are so tight, when a disruption like a global pandemic happens, you know what hits the fan. But uh, Daniel, I do appreciate that perspective. Um, as somebody who works in the lumber business, I wish lumber was more expensive. As a woodworker myself, yeah, I wish lumber was cheaper, but uh, it is what it is, right? All right, let's move on 
to some questions here. A lot of interesting questions here. Daniel um, wrote in, this is a different Daniel. I uh, said, um, had a mobile sawmill come on my property and mill up trees that had blown down in a storm. Um, I ended up with about 1,500 board feet in total and the wood is sitting stickered in a barn. I built a small solar kiln that allows me to dry about 200 board feet at a time. Um, and then I built a small insulated box, another kiln that could only handle about 50 board feet. Um, but I could get the, the wood up higher to 140 degrees Fahrenheit for sterilization for, for, you know, heat treating essentially. So because of the volume, like the capacity of the kiln, I'm going through the wood at quite a slow rate. So I'm wondering if I'll need to sterilize the wood that, that hasn't been dried, that I haven't gotten to yet, that is years old. Is there a point where the starch or whatever they eat, whatever the bugs eat, breaks down to a point where they don't infest it anymore? If it helps, I'm in South Carolina, um, the northwest corner of South Carolina. So Daniel, uh, the answer is no. <laughs> there is not a point to where they won't infest it anymore. There's a couple of things going on here. First and foremost, um, talk to anybody who specializes in reclaimed lumber, and you will still find powder post beetles in oak beams that are hundreds of years old. They will still continue to eat the stuff. Uh, I've run into logs that can be 20, 30, 40 years old that haven't been milled up, and they are infested with bugs, which brings you to the other point. As lumber does begin to rot, all it does is get sweeter. All it does is get more attractive to the bugs. Um, look at a banana. You know, that banana, when it's still kind of green, uh, it's filled with, um, uh, uh, excuse me, other way. When the banana starts to ripen, when it starts to go brown, there's a heck of a lot more sugar in there and actually less vitamins. It's more just as the, the starches and, and the, the vitamins and the minerals and things like that and the, the, just the carbs begin to break down. Well, carbs are essentially sugar, glycogen. Uh, as they break down even further, they just turn to sugar, some form of glucose. And that's really that rotting process. As wood begins to rot, the older and older wood gets, just the tastier it becomes. Now, instead of that log being dinner, it's now dessert. So yeah, the bugs will stay at it. And it's something you need to be aware of. Now, that's where treating the ends of the boards with a borax solution might help or spraying the boards down with a borax solution might help or just doing your best to keep them stickered and kind of out of the wet and slowing that rotting process, but then also just steadily working through the wood. Um, he said, he just said, okay, he said two years ago, he had a mobile sawmill come. Well, if you are drying 200 board feet at a time, he doesn't say how long it's taking him to dry 200 board feet, but um, 200 board feet, that's a small enough kiln. You probably don't need to dry them as long as you think you're drying them. You might be able to speed things up, but you know, if you just don't have the time, he said that um, he just had a baby, his wife just had a baby. So, you know, there's certainly not that much time to dedicate to it. I wouldn't panic. I would certainly pay attention to your lumber that's stacked and stickered and look for signs of boring insects. Um, but I don't think you need to really rush through it or, or worry about it. If you find that a board does have boring insects, you wanna quarantine that board. Um, and if it's not that you know special board, maybe burn it <laughs> to get rid of those bugs altogether or possibly put it in your kiln to heat treat it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think you need to try to rush through things. Certainly bugs will continue to eat it, but we're talking much, much grander scales. You're saying two years ago, that's really not that long uh, for those boards to sit there. Just keep an eye on them and you should be fine. Uh, okay, 
This is a question from Joe. Um, actually, he said uh, he needs to stop listening to the Lumber Update right before he goes to bed because apparently it's giving him dreams. He had a dream that there was suddenly a vacant lot across from his house and it was filled with pine trees and he was very excited about it and he was telling people about all the different pine trees. Truly, this is a listener of the Lumber Update. I do appreciate that amount of nerdery, Joe. But he goes on to say um, he's building drawers and he wants them to be made out of pine and his dream got him thinking about what kinds of pine would be good for drawers. So let's talk about this. There is pine and then there is quote unquote air quotes pine. You know, you can go to like Home Depot and everything is listed as pine or sometimes listed as white wood. Um, you know, and a lot of people will look at spruce and think that's pine. Some people will look at hemlock or fir and think that's pine um, when it's not actually pine, right? It's not in the pinus genus. Um, but it kind of gets lumped under pine. So let's specifically talk about the pines. And if I were gonna make it for drawers, well, I mean, it's kind of sort of all gonna look the same. It's gonna have that white wood look. Certainly the yellow pines have a little bit more yellow to it. To me, I think it's about choosing the grain and choosing a quarter sawn board that is gonna have the least amount of movement for those drawer sides so that your drawers don't get stuck in place. Um, I do think a quarter sawn board will wear a little bit better over time, but then that's the next thing. You do want a species that's gonna be durable enough as you're pulling those drawers in and out, they will wear over the years. So something like Eastern white pine, maybe not the best idea. For that matter, even if we stretch out of the pines, going into the firs and, and some of the spruces, not all of them, um, firs and spruces that is, um, can be rather soft. Cedars, the same thing, rather soft. Western pine, eastern pine, sugar pine, it's all relatively soft stuff. I would go with more of the harder pines. Um, those are, well, certainly the southern yellow. I mean, southern yellow pine is, is more of a group than a specific kind of pine. Uh, specifically, you're looking at like loblolly pine or shortleaf slash pine. Um, those are in this, those are kind of southern yellow pines. Those tend to be quite a bit harder and more resinous. They can get up to like seven, 750 Janko hardness. Um, another thing to look at is like mountainous pines, um, any pine that's growing in a mountainous area, some Virginia pines growing up in the mountains. Um, there are several different mountain pines. I think pitch mountain pine is one. I think there's a table pine. I might be wrong on that. Um, pitch pines, those tend to be a little bit harder. Um, as you go west into the Rockies, to me, lodgepole, ponderosa, those are the pines. Those tend to, again, be about 500 to 600 Janko hardness. I personally think they have a little bit of a yellowish cash that you might think of as southern yellow pine, um, but they're, they're really robust. They're also quite large trees, so you can get really beautiful straight quarter sawn pieces that just look gorgeous. When you think of like old growth heart pine, that tends to be like a ponderosa or a lodgepole. Um, those are just gorgeous, gorgeous pines. So from an aesthetic perspective, I would go with lodgepole or, or ponderosa. Um, from a hardness perspective, probably loblolly would be where I would go. They're also just more interesting. They're harder because they have more contrast between early and late growth. That's that stripey nature of them, where like eastern and western white pine don't have as much contrast between e uh, early and late growth, which is why they're not as stripey, why they're just more of a generic white ish color. So yeah, if I was choosing it, I would go with durability and I would go with kind of that cool kind of old heart pine look. And again, Loblolly, Ponderosa, Lodgepole. Those are the ones that I go with. Possibly 
Jack Pine? I'm trying to remember. Oh, quick wood uh, wood database. Uh, it's Pinus Bank uh, Bank Siana. I know that much. Um, I think that's in the Yellow Pine group. Yeah, yeah, it's a Yellow Pine group. So it's a northern um, northern tree. You know, goes in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, not just just Michigan in general. Uh, also, the Upper Peninsula. But in a colder climate, it's going to have a little bit slower growth. It's going to have a little bit more early and late wood. Um, so more striation, more contrast, in other words. Um, so yeah, jack pine might be another one to look at as well. That's a, that should be an episode all by itself. Let's talk about pine. Pine is fine. Some really fascinating stuff. Pine gets a bad rap, but uh, personally, I, I do love working with it. And let's start talking internationally, like some of the air quote pines in other parts of the world, the Scots pines and some of what the Australians call pine. <laughs> it's not, not even, not even pine at all, but yeah, cool stuff. Um, I'm going to making a note right now to do an episode on pine. Um, I think it would be educational for myself as well. Thanks Joe for that inspiration. Um, Steven sent me an email and he's essentially asking about the movement in plywood. He says, I I've built some boxes with what I think is sufficient tolerance for the seasonal dimensional changes in plywood. But I realized that I can't say that as a fact because I can find zero data on the movement of plywood with changes in moisture. And I particularly love this email. This is definitely a good lumber update listener because the title of his email, the subject line of his email was quantitative dimensional stability of plywood. Yeah, that's my kind of person right there, Stephen. So let's let's make this real simple. Um, don't worry about it. Um, I'm not going to say that plywood doesn't move. Yes, it moves. It doesn't move enough that you need to be concerned. Um, you could build an entire case out of plywood, treat it like it was solid wood. Say you ripped it, you know, into narrow pieces for rails and styles and for the panels in your floating raised panel or, you know, uh, frame and panel joinery. Um, the biggest issue you would have with something like that is just the weakness of plywood. Plywood is not very rigid. There are some plywoods that are rigid, like lumber core, blockboard plywood, but your typical veneer core plywood is not very rigid. It's not very structural. Um, it does better when it's attached to something like solid wood. So building an entire case out of it, you need a lot of joinery to kind of shore this up. We talked about this in Wood Talk recently where, you know, um, crappier plywood needs more um, structure in order to keep it from moving and things like that. But uh, moving, in other words, under load, like racking and, and sagging and things like that, not moving as in wood moisture, dimensional seasonal changes. Really, there's, there's a couple things at play here and why I say the movement number is negligible. A, your veneers that comprise it are thin enough that even though they're moving, say it's a hardwood ply and it's got, you know, cherry core. It's not going to happen very much. Or an aspen core or poplar core, um, North American poplar, Loriadendon tulip fair, not the European stuff. Um, it's going to have tangential and radial movement, but the radial is pretty much negligible because you're talking about a one-tenth of an inch thickness in that veneer. And if these are rotary cut slices, you're, you know, the radial dimension is across the thickness like you would expect in, in a normal flat sawn board. The tangential movement is still going to happen because, but because that veneer, that individual ply is so thin, it can really be locked into place. The strength um, exerted as it expands and contracts due to moisture is not enough to override the glue. 
Then when you take the next sheet and you put it in a, in a cross grain situation, now that movement is directly in opposition to the movement of the ply beneath it and they kind of ameliorate, they kind of even each other out. Now add to the fact that the glue is soaking into those fibers and essentially stabilizing them and kind of locking them in place. Not only is it locking one ply to the next ply, but there is amount of absorption into that one tenth or one sixty fourth of an inch thickness that um, it's it's kind of locking it in, in a lattice or in a matrix or something like that. And stack each one of those plies on top of one another and all that glue in there. Um, I don't actually know the percentage of weight in a panel, plywood panel that's glue. I don't think there is a number because it would vary from one manufacturer from one product to another, but it's a measurable amount of glue that's really holding that stuff in place. So for all intents and purposes, plywood does not move. It, it just doesn't. Um, and the reason you're not finding any, any numbers on that is the, first of all, the number will be so low that it's really meaningless. Second of all, it will be so variable from one manufacturer to another and within a manufacturer from one product line to another. The next thing is from one run to another, like from 9 a.m. on the run to 3 p.m. on the run, you may find different dimensional stability there, um, seasonal stability, due to the fact that maybe the glue got changed over in the middle of the day. And as the glue, uh, as the hopper of the glue ran lower, maybe the glue got split a little bit thinner on those panels. Not so much that it would affect like the performance of the panel, but there may be less moisture and less kind of locking the, the pieces together. There are so many variables in the manufacturing process. And because that movement number is so small, you get into that like manufacturing tolerance and allowable um, deviation, and it just becomes, well, negligible. Yeah. So as far as planning for movement in your project, Stephen, that's why people use plywood because they don't have to worry about it. They don't have to calculate anything. They don't have to worry about qualitative or quantitative issues and that. So yeah, good question and uh, probably needed to be asked because it's one of those things a lot of people assume, but yeah, plywood does move, but so little, it's not even worth it. Next question comes from Ethan on the topic of buying logs. Um, he actually runs a sawmill uh, out in Missouri and he says, uh, I've listened to every podcast you've made. Thanks for the good show. Well, thank you for listening to all of them. I do very much appreciate that. He says on one of your recent shows, uh, you talked about log grading and scaling and how that works. I'd love to hear you explain the whole log buying process and how a person can sell logs. I have more than I can cut at the moment and was thinking about selling them, but finding the contact information of log buyers seems to require some magic guild membership and those secrets are hidden under lock and key. I'd love to hear your thoughts on log selling process and who buys logs. So here's, here's the problem. There are while there are log buyers out there, most of those guys tend to be buying veneer logs. And the rest of the log buying is more buying and selling from one sawmill to another. So maybe there is a guy at the sawmill, maybe like yourself, who just has got an eye for logs, um, maybe has a specialization in one species or another. And I do find more and more, back to the like profitability and why lumber isn't more expensive, more and more sawmills have become profitable by specializing. And they're not sawing 
20 different species. Maybe maybe they are selling 20 different species, but they're really known for white oak or they're really known for cherry. And like, if you need good cherry, you go to Joe in the Adirondacks. You know, if you need really good white oak, you go to this guy in Ohio. Um, that's really where that, that margin is coming from. So there is a guy or two guys there that really know what to look at when they're looking at a white oak log or a cherry log. Just the same as lumber graders tend to be really good at certain species and uh, a typical mill may have several different lumber graders and you know you bring in Steve to do the the cherry and the walnut and the maple but you bring Joe in to do the white oak and the red oak um, and then you bring you know Victor in for the the exotic material um, because there's so many things to be aware of. It's like a dog show, right? We just had Thanksgiving and the national dog show was on. There's that one guy who's really good at the working group and the one guy is really good at the toy group. And then there's just that one individual who can do best in show and can, can you know, judge all the different breeds. That's very rare to have that one person that can judge, you know, grade 20 different species. For that matter, buy 20 different species of logs. So for the most part, the reason you're finding it difficult to find the contact information of log buy is they're guys just like you. It's an employee of a sawmill that is buying the log who has a market demand, has buyers coming to them looking for white oak boards. So he's going and looking for white oak logs. He's not really buying logs on mass. He's buying to fill whatever demand he has. And because he has a specialization in white oak, he's going and kind of picking through and finding what he's looking for. The people who are going out to like concessions, going to to like the lumberjacks, the guys actually felling the trees and buying logs specifically tend to be buying either for a manufacturer or for a veneer, you know, and veneers, veneer logs tend to be bought and sold on a broker basis because frankly, there's more money in it. Um, the broker is is a layer in there that's that's taking some of the margin out of it. But because veneer logs are so valuable, you can actually afford to have that layer in there and you can have a person who goes out and does nothing but buy veneer logs. But like companies that, you know, furniture manufacturers or companies that do a lot of doors and windows and they saw their own lumber, they have a guy on staff. He's not a, he is a log buyer, but he's not like a freelance log buyer. He's a log buyer for XYZ company. And you're might be able to get in, in in touch with him if you know that company buys logs. But here's the other thing. There's not a lot of companies buying logs anymore because the waste factor from log to board is so incredibly high. And unless you have that specialization in a certain species, because a cherry log, you're going to saw that differently than you will a white oak log. And your demand, like the customers coming to buy boards, that demand may be very different. In fact, it will be different from a cherry buyer, um, board buyer, and a white oak board buyer. For that matter, I mean, white oak is a, is a real hot button right now because there are people looking for rift white oak. They don't want quartered anymore. Quartered is crap. <laughs> Just blows my mind. Flat song, forget about it. Quartered song, don't want it. I want rift. So they're going and they're looking specifically for rift. So the Sawyer is thinking, okay, I need logs that I can get a good yield when I'm sawing for rift. Now they know that there's going to be a huge amount of waste when they saw for rift that way. So going and having someone dedicated to just buying logs, um, it's, it's wasteful when you can go to a sawmill and say, just buy rift. And yeah, you're going to pay more for those rift boards because that Sawyer may have to saw 5,000 board feet of lumber to get the 500 board feet of rift. Actually, that number is not 
quite accurate. It's less than that for Rift. You know, 100 board feet of Rift. Um, it's it's just easier because you don't have to deal with all the other stuff. Because you think about all the waste, you have to do something with that. And if you have to saw 10 logs to get the material that you need, well, there's a hell of a lot of waste literally piling up. That is a massive fire hazard. It's a dust hazard. It's a bug hazard. There's all kinds of things. You need to move that material and get it out of there. Well, now you're selling that material. Hopefully you're selling that material or worst case scenario, you're paying someone to come remove that waste for you. There's a huge amount of waste when it comes to actually sawing logs. I'm sure you know this, Ethan, because you run a sawmill. So if you could be a large manufacturer who needs a lot of wood and you can say, all right, well, I could hire this person to go buy some logs and then deal with all this waste and maybe save a little bit of money, probably not. Or I could just go buy the boards and not have to deal with all that headache and all that overhead and that specialization. That's what's going to happen. So there's fewer and fewer specialized log buyers and more guys who run sawmills who also happen to be good at buying logs. And that's why you're finding it like this magic guild. There's really not a guild of log buyers sitting around in the instance uh, where there are log scalers that tends to be somebody who works for um, for the, the government or at least is on contract to the government. Um, up in Canada, there are actual Canadian log scalers. There are log scalers in the US that tend to be more freelance, but they're kind of reporting back to the government because that's what the scaling is all about. So what I would say is, first of all, if you have logs to sell, you have something that people are interested in. Now, it depends upon what species. Um, I've had a couple of visits to sawmills recently, and there's a lot of people who are looking for logs. White oak is a hot button right now, as I just said, and people can't get enough white oak logs to saw, mainly because of that is sheer volume of waste because of the demand for rift. So people are having to find more and more logs to meet the demand for rift, and they're ending up with more and more there's waste, certainly in the form of sawdust, but also waste in the form of quartered and flat sawn that they can't, you know, they can't sell for pennies. So it's just piling up and piling up on their yard and they're having to saw more and more logs, buy fine more roller logs to get that, um, to hit that quota of rift that they're trying to hit. So if, for instance, you have white oak, call some sawmills. Um, don't look for log buyers, but call around to other sawmills. Specifically, if you know sawmills that specialize in white oak, you want to call them and say, hey, guys, I've got white oak logs. Then someone may come out who knows what they're doing and buy some of those logs from you. If you just have a whole bunch of, you know, a pile of logs that are just a whole bunch of different species, that's going to be a lot more difficult because more and more people, they're looking for boards. They're not looking for logs because well, as you know, it's a lot of work to go from log to board and a lot of waste and a lot of cost in the form of time. So yeah, uh, it's probably not the answer we're looking for, but um, hopefully it gives you a little bit of help. And if you are sitting on some valuable species logs, start calling some other sawmills because if you if you can't get to them, there's somebody out there who's got an empty log yard. And, and based on the mills that, that I visited and my buyers have visited, there are there are sawmills out there who do not have logs like like you do and probably would be wanting to talk to you. Last question here is from Tyler, and we're going to dive into the Yakasugi. Um, shishugiban is what it's been known, and it's my understanding that in Japanese there is no such term as shishugiban. Uh, the term of charring wood is known as Yakasugi. So we'll get our little semantics out of the way on that. But if you're not familiar with this, it's been around for millennia. Um, the Vikings did this stuff. The Japanese have been doing this for millennia as well. 
you burn the the board um, and many times you'll then like wipe on an oil over top of it and you essentially are for lack of a better term waterproofing the board so tyler wrote in and he is looking to do um, he wants to replace replace the pavers um, on the front of his house with something kind of unique durable and permeable and uh, he's seen that ingrain cookies have been used as pavers. So um, there are some companies using a rot-resistant black locust, and uh, he's thinking about charring it. And he says, to my understanding, the process of charring wood does not waterproof them. It just makes them water bug and rot-resistant. You are correct. There's really no such thing as waterproofing. Water will always find a way to get in, but you're certainly making it water-resistant. You're cooking all of the sugars, all the cellulose, all the hemocellulose, so the bugs aren't interested anymore. And therefore, rot is a combination of water and bugs. So the, the burning process is... Um, well, think of burnishing. If you were to take sandpaper and sand a board all the way up through like automotive grits to like 6,000 grit, or put a piece on the lathe and just hold sandpaper to it until it starts to get hot under your hand and then you burn your fingers, you're actually burnishing that wood and you are, you're in the early stages of burning the wood, which is what Yakasugi is doing. That is actually hardening the fibers. It's, it's first of all, heating up the wood and, and sucking out any moisture. It's also baking those fibers like you would in a kiln or like you would with thermally modified wood. And it's, air quotes here, sealing up the wood. Because those fibers are being burnt, they're no longer able to absorb water. And I've talked about this idea of a dry creek bed where it rains and the water just sluices off and calls the flash flood because that that dirt is so dry and caked and hard that it's not it doesn't want to absorb that moisture the same thing with a kiln dried board the reason we kiln dry is it hardens the cell walls it dries it to the point where while the board can still absorb moisture it takes longer to absorb moisture so little spikes in in the weather throughout the day don't really affect kiln dried lumber as much because the walls the cell walls are resistant to absorbing moisture Yakisugi kicks it up a notch, just like thermal modified. I mean, essentially, thermally modified wood is is Yakisugi without oxygen or low levels of oxygen. If you did try to do thermally modified thermal modification without reducing the oxygen levels in a kiln, you would end up with Yakisugi. <laughs> You'd get charred wood. So it is essentially sealing it and making it rot resistant. So he goes on to say with your knowledge of wood cellular structure, would you consider only bug resistant woods such as cedar and black locust as the only viable options for uh, cookies? Because um, certainly we're talking about ground contact. Would you uh, additionally consider it necessary to seal any part of the wood to prevent moisture buildup? So let's let's go backwards here. No, I would not consider it um necessary to seal it up because that's essentially what you're doing by burning it. The idea of taking um, charring and then putting boiled linseed oil on it is in some ways, first of all, it makes it look prettier. Um, second of all, there is oil now, which will make things even more water repellent and something like a natural oil, you know, oil and water don't mix, right? So if you're soaking oil into the wood to a minimal degree, because again, the, the wood being charred is not going to soak it all up. But Yakasugi is not charred all the way through. It's just kind of a hard outer shell. Um, the oil will eventually soak past the charred wood and into the, the, the innards, the, the non-charred wood, and that oil will, for lack of a better term, impregnate and drive out the water, but also prevent water ingress 
in the future, at least until that oil eventually cures, which with that hard outer shell can take years for that to actually cure and, and, and flash off. So in that instance, the oil is not sealing it. It's just kind of adding additional moisturizer. The thing that I would worry about adding oil to an ingrain cookie like this is oil as it breaks down turns into sugar, which is what feeds fungus, which is what feeds bugs. If you are specifically using an inorganic oil, then it won't break down into things that fungus and algae and bugs will eat. But inorganic oil is very expensive and it's inorganic. So if you're looking for like a renewable, green, friendly type thing, it might not be the best solution. More importantly, it's just cost prohibitive, um, much more difficult to get. So this is one of those things that's really funny because so many of like the decking finishes are oils and the more resin and stuff that's in the wood, um, the more it's going to like extract the natural resins and oils from the wood and essentially suck it out. The stuff that's keeping the wood rot resistant, the oil is actually going to bond with that and extract it out. And as it breaks down, that's why you get mold on your deck. So I don't know whether using oil is really going to be necessary. The other thing you have to recognize is it's still going to fall apart. It's still going to degrade. It's still going to rot. Now, charring the wood means that it will last a hell of a lot longer than if you just put up, you know, an ingrained cookie that wasn't charred down there. But it is still going to, to break apart. Um, so don't think that this is going to be a permanent solution for the next 20 years. Um, I honestly don't know how long it will last. I know a lot of people have done this and have been perfectly happy with it two, three, five years down the road. Um, but a lot of that's going to depend upon your soil and your climate and how much rain you get and all that stuff. Certainly it's going to last a lot longer than an uncharred, um, section. The other part of your question is, do you only consider using bug resistant woods viable? Absolutely not. Because, those bug resistant woods, the reason they're bug resistant is because of the resins, because of the oils in the wood that makes the wood taste nasty. Well, by charring it, you're essentially baking that stuff out. You're hardening it, you're crystallizing it, you're causing it to flash off. So that's no longer there. So in some ways, using a naturally bug resistant wood and then charring it is kind of silly because you're, you're removing that natural tendency um, to do it. But what you can do by charring is using a wood that is not naturally resistant and making it resistant because of the charring that happens, which is why you find a lot of softwoods, a lot of pines and things like that, that you wouldn't normally think of as a, as a rot-resistant wood being used for um, yakusugi. I keep trying to say shishugiban, and I'm trying to be correct here and say yakusugi. There's a lot of different species that can be used for this. Some will burn better than others. The other thing you have to worry about though, is this does really make an inherently fragile board. If you burn it too much, you can get it to flake off. And there's a very popular called gator style where you've um, burned it to enough that it starts to turn into scales. Well, that is quite fragile. And you will find a lot of people who are then putting a varnish over top of it to lock it in place. But if you bump it or, you know, or knock it with a forklift, you can basically knock some of that scale off and you've got like bright white uncharred wood underneath it. So we're talking about something that's going to be trod upon. You are essentially making that cookie even more fragile because you're burning it. So I would probably rely on a thicker cut in order to, to make that happen and char it and then just expect that it eventually will rot away. 
So I, well, let me go back on what my, on what I'm saying here. If you did use, uh, a rot resistant wood, then I suppose the, the gooey center that's not charred would still be rot resistant on its own because you certainly wouldn't try to char it all the way through. Then you're just going to end up with ash. Um, and there's just no way to do that without destroying it. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to eat my words and say, maybe there is a case for using a rot resistant wood, but I wouldn't use something like cedar because cedar is so soft, um, and it will char readily, but it's really not going to be very durable. Something like black locust. Yeah. White oak possibly. Now you'll find that those are a lot harder to char, um, but it is certainly doable. Something, however, that you know, has a lot of sugar content in it, like maple, it's going to char really easily, but you probably won't leave it as protected because it will char very quickly. Think of uh, creme brulee, you know, the sugar on top and it chars up and it looks golden brown and lovely right away. That's because there's so much sugar in it. Is it really, air quotes, waterproofing it? Probably not. So yeah, I'm going back on my word and saying, it would be a good idea to start with a wood that would do well when ground contact, which is why black locust gets used, simply because you're not burning it all the way through. If I'd actually thought that question through before I'd answered it, I probably would have gotten there. So you just got to see my decision-making process there. So good question, Tyler. I think um, looking into Yakasugi um, as its own topic in the future might be worthwhile. Um, it is interesting because it is kind of, well, it's still in vogue in some respects, but it's starting to fall out of fashion a lot in siding simply because it is quite high maintenance. It looks pretty, but, um, because it is more inherently fragile and because you're ending up like locking it in place with finish. And then once the finish starts to flake away, when you try to maintain the finish, you're tearing, like if you maintain a varnish by sanding it away, well, then you're also sanding off the, the charred surface. So more and more people are going with a faux shishugi bond by actually using tinted finishes. The other thing is, is it is a sensitizer because you're essentially creating charcoal, you're creating dust and it definitely doesn't work well in interior environments. And there's a lot of people that can have problems with it with, uh, in relation to the dust. And therefore people put a film finish over top of it to lock in the dust, which kind of defeats the purpose in the long run. So yeah, ultimately the, the best way of Shishugi Ban is, you know, charring it, oiling, and it's sticking up on the side of, of a building. Using it as a deck that gets walked on, using it as pavers that gets walked on, that's where things get to be a little bit of an issue. Um, Shishugi Ban, excuse me, Yakasugi has worked well for millennia because it tends to be used as siding in that respect. So great question. Um, let me know if uh, that answers your question. If you have more uh, on top of that, I'd, I'd love to hear it. But I think that will do it for me this week, folks. A little bit shorter episode, but I definitely wanted to get through some of those uh, email questions. I've got a lot more, but um, yeah, I think that's enough for this particular episode. So as usual, folks, thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for supporting the show. Keep sending in those questions. Love it. Um, I love hearing the feedback from you all. And um go buy some wood because it should be more expensive. And think of the bargain you're getting when you go buy some lumber. <laughs>